Well, how you doing out there? Color Commentary family. We are back on Color Commentary, colorful conversations by colorful people about Christianity, culture, and race. I'm your host, Marcus Lloyd. With me, as always, Mr. Antoine Malone. Say what's up, Antoine. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up, everybody? Man, we're so glad that you come back and you're listening with, to the show. It has been a fun run yeah. of, of, of things. It's, it's, it's not common in 2020 that That's we could say anything has been <laughs> a fun run. Like, okay. we have, we, it, it, you know what I mean? But um, I'd like to say, man, the, the commentary, uh, the, the podcasts we've been on and some of the guests that we've been able to talk with here recently have, have been super uh, exciting. And I'm excited for, uh, for what we're going to get a chance to talk about today as well. So the fun continues <laughs> well, uh, on. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, it may not be fun for some people. You know, sometimes, sometimes people come to the show and, and, and it's not always <laughs> Fun. It's, a, it's it's fun for me every time. I <laughs> I love I love that doesn't mean anything. You you like I love new stuff. ideas. That's right. I love ideas. I I don't mind being challenged. Like and and okay and doggone it. I wish everybody was like that. You know, but but whatever. that's not the case. It's not the case <laughs> at all. It's not the case. <laughs> By the way, before we get on, let me let me. I got I I got to do my part in this. And my okay, right, right. Mind pay, pay the bills to remind the people to go ahead and review, rate and review the podcast and subscribe if you haven't. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do one other thing. I'm going to ask you to share, well, share you're adding the podcast something. with some friends. Yeah, I'm okay. adding stuff. Well, we, we met our last goal, so it's time okay. to set new goals. All right. So the new goal is to go ahead and find one or two people who you think uh, might be interested. Here's the deal. The podcast is not about us. Our podcast is a vehicle. It's a resource designed to help people who are struggling with how to navigate this minefield of a conversation mm-hmm. with racial con- in the racial racial conflict with the gospel. And it is a minefield. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a minefield out there. So we want to help you navigate that, and 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 we want to help you point out where the where the where the bombs are. How to turn I feel left like and turn I, look, right, I feel like minefield you know? is not appropriate enough i feel like there's got to be like bigger it's bigger it's a minefield devices. in the middle of a war while the, the missiles are coming from the okay. top as well it's all going down but the point is we need Just help my so last facebook want, conversation incidentally that, that's there you exactly go. what it was so we want you to help us we want to help you and we want you to help others. And that's what this conversation, this, this podcast is about. So, right. um, you know, so skip all the marketing ideas. I know that you got the marketplace stuff and we, well, we want to be a successful. It's a tool and, uh, and people need the need the tool. So help somebody, help somebody by, uh, by, by uh, suggesting the podcast. And if certainly if you find it helpful, that's the challenge. It is. It is. And look, I, I hope, it, I hope the things that we do all the time are helpful. I think today is going to be uh <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be, it's going to be extremely helpful. I just don't know if it's yes, going to be yes, extremely yes, helpful, be for, helpful for getting people to, to sign up and share. Uh, but we're going to, we're going to continue on uh, nonetheless. Um, man, we're excited to have uh, a guest with us today. He is the uh, founder and senior pastor of River City Community Church in Chicago. Uh, very sought after speaker and uh, diversity trainer and guest for podcasts like this and other kinds of media as well, partially uh, because he's written uh, two amazing books that help people establish their white racial identity, which sounds such a strange thing to say with me and you, Antoine, sitting here, and I'm saying <laughs> their white racial identity. But we're going to let him do most of the talking on this. Uh, the, the all the eyebrows go. All the eyebrows go up. <laughs> what racial? What are you about to talk about? Which which yeah, one? Exactly. But it's saying. colored commentary. I told you we're going to have all kinds of shades coming mm-hmm. through here, and it's it's going to be fun. Uh, so, but he's written two great books. Um, uh, White Awake was the uh, original book that I got to read. And just recently, 
he came out with a book that had a very provocative title, which I really enjoyed, is White Lies. So, ladies and gentlemen, man, I give you Dr. Daniel Hill. How are you doing today, Daniel? Hey, good, Marcus Antoine. Uh, pleasure to be here with you guys. Man, man, we're so glad to have you on the show. It is a, it is a, it's something that I know many people have wanted. That it, my uh, my wife picked up your book, White Lies, and she had read Wide Awake as well at some point. Uh, but she was like, you got to get this guy on the show. I was like, babe, we're already, uh, we've already moved on to that. We're, we're getting it. So uh, I thought, I literally thought she'd be sitting here like wanting to listen. So I think she made herself get away so she wouldn't, you know, jump in and ask her own questions. <laughs> she did. But, she was a big fan. She, she, uh, she definitely put some stuff out there just the other day. Oh yeah. yeah uh, she, quotes from, she, quotes she from the book. Yeah, man. She's coming in on it. She came in quoting stuff to me. I was like, I already know this guy. <laughs> hey, we already here. Already we got in it. on this. In fact, uh, it's Daniel, the the your book Wide Awake, it's interesting because you mentioned in White Lies, you talk about this, you know, uh in, in some ways, white people um coming to people of color and asking them to help them on their journey, right? And uh, many times people come to me and wanting me to help them on their journey. Help me. What do I read? All those kinds of things. And, uh, and so sometimes I'll be, if I'm in the mood, I'll be very polite and I'll kind of put together a little reading list. But I, I usually, after a conversation with people, trying to figure out where they are. And uh, there's times when people are going to ask me, do you recommend white fragility? And I say, you know what? <laughs> Before somebody reads white fragility i usually recommend white awake first it's just i think it's i think you'll you'll walk into it a little bit different so i'm curious have you have you heard that sort of that sort of um uh, i don't know that 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 conversation about your book and robin d'angelo's book white fragility have you do you see a difference in the work that you guys are doing together or doing mm -hmm. in this space yeah yeah i mean i i I like her stuff. I've read everything. And, uh, I, I remember when that was kind of a term paper that she had done talk about white fragility. Right. And, and even back then I thought it was an interesting term. Um, uh, I do think just in the same way you, you all's organization, what do you call it? Gospel center, gospel, you said gospel centered and gospel based or what you said two different you know with all that. That all sounds it? good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, so, um, I, I do think it's, pretty profoundly difficult to meaningfully come into the problem of race outside the Christian perspective. Honestly, I think if you're not kind of looking at it through a Christocentric lens, it looks very different than if you are. And I think the approach is very different. So while I would agree with a lot of um, Dr. D'Angelo's analysis on the problems of the, of the system of race, I think it's very telling that she doesn't have any kind of a really spiritual in general, but for sure a Christocentric kind of thing. And so I don't mean that as kind of like a pulling a superior card or something like that, you know, but I can, you know, like when I've, when we've talked with the black folks in our church, you know, like, so for instance, white fragility, she says, really, there's never a time a white person should seek the help of, you know, a black leaders like yourselves, because, you know, for a variety of reasons, which from a secular perspective, you can actually follow her logic. Right. But then the black leaders, our church will say, but yeah, but when you're a Christian, you don't get to buy into that same logic. Right. right I mean, there's, right. there's a higher kind of ethic, you know, and, um, that's not to be flippant about what it means for you. I think each black person, black Christians got to make their own decision about what they can and can't do. But just even like some of the, like the foundational starting points of how you move into this, I think are really different if you're coming out from a second perspective or a Christian perspective. So I'd say at that level, we would share some of the same analysis, but have kind of a very different sense of what white folks should be doing as we enter into this conversation. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a great articulation of some of the differences that uh, I've seen in the midst of the conversation and the way in which people, I think, um, 
want to approach the conversation. So again, many times if Christians are coming to me and saying, I want to read, I'll give them your book because I think it has that central Christian idea that kind of moves it forward. And, and even in the solutions, uh, I think some of the solutions are, are moving toward uh, the, the solutions that the gospel would align for us, as opposed to maybe some other thought processes that maybe uh, a book like White, uh, like, uh, White Fragility might take us. But again, I, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I think there's some really important and wonderful things that you can kind of get from that book. In fact, a friend of mine says, you know, he reads it with a rake, you know what I mean? Like he, he gets a lot out of it. Some of that stuff gets, gets left in there as well. So, um, but <clears throat> definitely yeah. uh, continue to, to recommend your book in the midst of it. Uh, yeah. Um, you, one of the things you say in your book, which I, I think will maybe help us go, it's, you talk about it in, in you know, obviously through the, the first book, Wide Awake, what I love about what you do is you, you kind of, you approach the, the conversation knowing that people are asking, what do I do? What do I do? Mm-hmm. And you tease them with it, like through the whole book. You're just like, I know you want to talk about what you can do, but let me tell you, you got to first see, but then towards at some point in the book, you do give some ideas about what to do. One of the things that you say uh, is invest in whiteness. Uh, I think it's what it's called. Invest in whiteness, invest in white people. Uh, how, how would you articulate that? What, is, what, do you, what do you mean by that? And why is that a, an important piece uh, as a white person to invest in white people? Yeah, invest in white people, I think. I don't know that I want to encourage anyone <laughs> Sorry, investment yeah. in whiteness. There's okay, already there. Like, that's <laughs> so not that's what he said. That's white distinction <laughs> is important. I'm glad you made it. I'm yeah. glad you made it. <laughs> like, wait a minute. We already got plenty of return on whiteness. <laughs> yeah. No, go ahead. Well, I'm, I even just think of my own story. When I started my church that I'm at now, River City, in January 2003, you know, I was, you know, probably about five years into my racial awakening journey, and I was aware enough that, um, so what I actually promised God when I started River City is that I would never write a book on race, that I would never publicly talk about race. Um, Cause I thought that was the right, th- you know, I, I thought that's the last thing we needed was more white people talking about that. And about eight, nine, 10 years into the journey, as I was working with a variety of mentors of color doing this work, they started encouraging me to share under their leadership. They started encouraging me to share more my own story with other white people. Mm. Of course, I informed them at that time that I already promised God I wouldn't. <laughs> like, well, that's great that you told God, but we're asking you now. <laughs> so yeah. God can speak in different ways, right? Um, but I think it was telling, you know, I, I'd say in some ways, this is the same idea. I said, why is it that you need me to talk to white folks? That's not really what I'm planning to do. They said two reasons. Let us say it positively and negatively. Let us say it negatively first. Most white people will only listen to other white people. Mm. And uh, that was really hard to hear. And I wanted to fight it at first, but I think I'm, I'm guessing you guys have called kind of anecdotal stories on this too. It's not all white people, of course, but the kind of deep-seated defensiveness and um, um, ways we can understand these things. We, we've got these kind of triggers that go off without us even realizing it. And so I was at a Christian conservative school right before COVID hit um, and I was talking about race and there was a white woman who got so mad um, in the, it was a student. She got so mad that I was there. She said, why are you even here? And she stormed out of the room. <laughs> and uh, I was talking to the African-American director of diversity and inclusion. Cause it's almost always what happens when white institutions with a black DNI director. Right. Um, yeah. so I was talking to him afterwards. Um, and, and I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry that happened. And he said, he said, no, please don't apologize. He goes, when I say stuff like this, I know what those white students do. They say, this is just an angry black man who had right. a hard life and is blaming white people for it. Right said, but when you say it, they just can't go to the typical tropes that they go to, to dismiss us, mm. which is a really long way of getting to my answer. I need to be a little more succinct here. So bottom line, that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we as white folks talk to white folks is because unfortunately, even if we say it far less eloquently, intelligently, a lot of white people are only going to listen to a white person. 
then that my minister on the positive side, the white journey is just different, right? Like the white journey is different than the black journey is different than the Asian journey is different than the, you know, Latinx journey. So you understand, like you've been wrestling with this. So as you're coming to understand it better, you're going to understand where other white people get stuck. And so I think those of us who are white, rather than kind of solving the problems of other groups that have been marginalized, I think we especially have to figure out like, how do we talk to our own people about our ongoing ignorance and apathy and indifference and, um, you know, we can understand how to get unhooked from that probably better than anybody because it's been our own story as well. Yeah, no, I think I'll try to be faster answers on these other ones. No, it's extremely important. I think, you know, again, God has given different people platforms and, uh, and ways in which to speak into different groups. And you're utilizing uh, your whiteness, if you will, uh, to be able to move into white spaces and to know where they get Investing in whiteness, man. Investing <laughs> 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 putting it down. There it is. Yeah, why not? Why not? It's a good thing. And then look, that actually helps. Well, we we say Huh? I'll say we, we we often say it this way. We we've communicated this way before that you know a lot a lot of our racial identities and all of but most of our sub identities end up just being platforms for the gospel in one way or the other when our primary mm-hmm. identity is Christ. So now you say, okay, how do I use how do I how do I bring the gospel to what does my ethnicity give yeah. me access to that others cannot have access to and how do I bring the gospel uniquely to that space because I have that access so black people have that white women men old young like all of the sub cowboys raiders notice plan but it, everybody's got all their little sub identities that they could bring I mean the cowboys do need Jesus look, so, look don't mean, get off track <laughs> okay I'm sorry okay I'm, but the point is at least the they're in a terrible division you still have a chance yeah they still got a chance <laughs> but the idea is that our sub identities become our platforms more than our our reflection of self, Christ becomes who we find ourselves mm-hmm. in and everything else we, we begin to use for his purposes. And that's that's what I hear you saying there. Yeah, definitely that coming to the aisle. Uh, at least that's the way we are articulated. But you, you talk about this again, this, this thought about, uh, you know, uh, your, 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 your um, trajectory has been to invest in white people and to write these books, um, particularly for white people, um, and one of the things that you went into in this new book, White Lies, is a topic that I have found white people hate to talk about. <laughs> uh, and that is the topic of white supremacy. Uh, you, you say in the book, you say white supremacy is one of the deadliest and most dangerous systems the world has ever seen. We all need mm-hmm. to see it, understand it, and then confront it. So I, I know just even saying that terminology uh, on this microphone right now uh, probably inspired some bit of feelings uh, in maybe some of our listeners. So I, I would love for, for people to understand because, you know, people talk about, you know, lots of different topics and terminologies in the midst of this conversation. What do you think most people think white supremacy is and then how would you sort of define it? For the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think most of us, especially most of us who are white, we tend to think of white supremacy as the most fringe extremist forms of it. Uh, uh, so we tend to associate it with the really violent expressions like the KKK or neo-Nazis, you know, think of Tiki Torches, Charlottesville, stuff like that, um, which when taken to extreme, I think that probably is what white supremacy looks like. But in doing so, we miss really the heart of what it is. So I would say that's what we think of it as, is the most extremist, violent forms. Uh, I mean, really, you can just even look it up on Google. I mean, most definitions are fairly um, similar. White supremacy is an ideology. Mm -hmm. It's a way of looking at the world. 
Um, it's it's a belief, uh, and this is this is why it's really important that Christians wrestle with this. White supremacy is a view of God and the world that says human it opposes the way the bible talks about the bible talks about human values kind of through the lens of the imago day right the image of god that Mm -hmm. genesis 126 male and female god has created us in our in his image and his light so therefore every human being has inherent value we don't get to determine who's valuable or not valuable right that's that's understood in classic christianity that our human value comes from the imago day white supremacy is a direct assault on that white supremacy says that's not true um, white supremacy says it's an ideology. It says it's divinely ordered still, but it's divinely ordered along a racial hierarchy mm. that there's a, there's a sense of superiority or supremacy, which is why the term is actually helpful, even though we coil at it, that there's a supremacy attached with whiteness, those who are born with white skin. Um, there's a sense of inferiority that's intrinsic and inherent to black skin. Um, even we've even seen theologically that case made. Um, and then the, the ideology it's not just black and white. It rank orders human value for Asian people, Latinx people, others, based on the proximity to those two poles. So the more proximate you are to whiteness, the more valuable you're deemed to be. The more proximate you are to blackness, the more inferior, invaluable, and less intelligent, thoughtful, more dangerous, all the kind of terrible things. And so it's a profound ideology that even if somebody's quick to say, oh my gosh, I dismissed that, I repudiate that, well, great, you know, that, that should be a no-duh. It still doesn't change the fact that it's the most powerful operative ideology in the world right now, particularly in the Western world. And so to follow Jesus, who's bringing all things under his lordship and not contend with the threat posed by white supremacy, it's, 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 it continues to be shocking to me that so many white Christians can kind of go through their day-to-day life without recognizing the threat level that white supremacy represents for the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, well but I think the question is, how how do they do that? Because obviously we do it, right? Like I think Christianity has done it for for generations, has gone through life without recognizing um, either, well, without recognizing white supremacy. So how is that possible? Like what are some of the things that keep us maybe from recognizing white supremacy uh, in our midst? I mean, how, how heavy do we want to go? Do we want to go all the way to heavy right now? <laughs> we don't have a problem with yes. I, think the, I yes. think the answer is, I think the answer is scary. Um, particularly, like if we can find it to America right now, American Christianity, how is it that white Christians in particular, because that's, right, I mean, that's the whole founding of a republic is European Christians looking for religious freedom, right? To, to be able yeah. to trust that here. Um, white Christianity formed right alongside with white supremacy and how, had to learn how to ignore it from its very origins, right? So just about everybody who studies race agrees that the system of race where white supremacy comes from, the system of organizing superiority with whiteness and inferiority of blackness, it really developed alongside with slavery, mm, right? We right. had to have a story. We had to have an ideology that could help Christians because it was mostly Christian. We were mostly a Christian nation at that point. So it was white Christians who owned black slaves, right? White Christians had to figure out a way to become okay with being owners of human beings and subjugate them to what they were subjugated with. And so that's what white supremacy was. White supremacy was this narrative that said there's an intrinsic value to whiteness that deems us worthy of being able to be above somebody else. There's an inherent inferiority to blackness that deems your people to be slaves, right? I mean, just horrible, horrible. Um, And it was Christians who had to learn how to embrace that. And so I'd say it's in our very origin story. Our very origin story was learning how to practice Christianity in a daily way that ignored the ravages um, of sin 
that white supremacy produced right alongside of it. So it's like it's in our it's in our very DNA um, in American Christianity. Like literally, that's the embryonic story of white Christianity in America is learning how to maneuver around white supremacy as our faith was forming. Wow. It's so huge to to understand the American story because there's so many Christians who don't understand that threadedness into the the birth of the the birth of our nation. Like I think I think they might see religion or Christianity as a social sidebar to the governing social decision making, when in reality, you know, the whole the whole purpose of discovery was driven by the concept of where where God's people meant to go out and make this place, make, make God's kingdom. And then when we get here, we're going to make that kingdom using these rules. Okay. So we need a theology that sets those rules. So right. this form of Christianity allows us to set those rules by saying that people with this hue of skin color were made superior to, to these right. others, to these others, and to use those others to help create everybody has their role to play now in God's kingdom. And so these other people's role is to do this and that is their greatest good, you know? And so um, understanding that whole mindset, um, it just hasn't been taught. It isn't taught. And therefore I think it's hard to even see the remnants of it in our current context without understanding the origins of it from the, from the previous, you know, from the, from the beginning. And it makes the, the American experience of racism and faith and pulling those apart is really distinct from any other nation, right? Because there's not That's another right. nation. I mean, racism exists everywhere in different forms, but there's not another nation that has an origin story like this, right? right? Where the racism, the Christianity from the very beginning weren't just woven together, but the, the Christianity was part of the justification for the racism. And that really is, that's a unique American story. And it's, it's, a, it's a complicated one and it's unique to our setting in a lot of ways. So, I mean, thinking about that, I mean, it, like you're saying, you're talking about it, sort of a DNA uh, type conversation around this idea of white supremacy. Yeah. What? So I, I know you talk to a lot of pastors, I'm sure a lot of white pastors who are hesitant to talk about white supremacy in their church. So what, what do you say to them um, uh, when they would say, no, I don't want to talk about white supremacy in the church based on that? Well, there's two different kind of conversations. There was white pastors who aren't really reckoning it within themselves yet. And that's mm-hmm. its own whole conversation is like, as a pastor, as a human being, as a follower of Christ, how do you come to understand this complicity that's happened between Christianity and white supremacy? Which again, hear me, like, I believe in Jesus with all my heart. I believe that when we know Jesus, he liberates us from this. So I'm, I'm not questioning Jesus in this. I'm just questioning that. I'm alluding the fact that I think for white supremacy to survive and exist, it had to attach itself to Christianity. So there's that one conversation of just contending with that for themselves, which is the much harder one, deeper one, maybe not harder. Then there's the several, one, which may be what you're asking. Once they've come to that conviction, that white supremacy is real and that Christ followers should resist it, should name it, should work to uproot it. Um, you know, that's a much more direct conversation of like, what risk level are you willing to take within your organization? Because typically speaking, white conservative Christians don't do well with this conversation. And so if a white pastor wants to start talking, in fact, I know of three different white pastors now who have pushed, I would say not very hard really at the end of the day, but hard enough to bring it up to the to the forefront of the church's thing. In all three cases, it started with an exodus of people leaving angrily, yep. church budget falling, and then the pa- yep. all three times the pastor ended up either resigning or kind of being forced to leave. So I actually don't want to minimize the risk, like just having a basic truth-telling exercise around the history of white supremacy and the threat level it represents to Jesus and his kingdom 
is a risky enough enterprise that it can get most white people fired in evangelical settings. I, I, I think it's interesting too that that, that is true. Like it, it, that is worth examining. I, I have two questions for you, but the first was that one. Why is it like, okay, so why is it, you know, not, this is rhetorical. So, but, but why is it that to bring up white supremacy means is the, is the predictable path that you just laid out, mass exodus, you know, if we're Amago Day, people who would call ourselves post-white supremacy, if I would, if I were to coin a term, most of us would say, oh, it's back in the day and we're, we're beyond that. Yeah. Then, then to bring that up should not be, um, and to reveal that should, should not be something that would cause this exodus for those who have their identities rooted in Christ. And yet we find that it is. It, it, and, and the truth is in the, you know, sort of in the pudding with that. Like you can see it, mm-hmm. it, it drove you, not drew you, right? And you decided mm-hmm. not to fight for this. And, and I think that is worth, I think we have to ask ourselves what that says about us. And the second thing, um, or that was more of a statement. The first, the first question I guess I have is, you mentioned something they said that white supremacy rides on the tails. And I know in your book, probably one of the most, one of the most controversial word lines in, in the book is where you where you 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 claim that white supremacy that white supremacy is a parasite and that Christianity is its host, and mm-hmm. that it has survived by writing or by being a parasite to Christianity. And of course, that sentence on its own, if you take out all the rest mm-hmm. of your book, then that's going to be someone someone draws out and completely misunderstands. So I want to I want to try to give but you that's a, Willie, that's Willie Jennings, right? <laughs> like, so you could kind of yeah. you could point to Willie and be like, well, Willie said it. <laughs> and uh, I just repeated it, but it is, it is the first, it's the, if, if people haven't read, you know, read or walk, followed after Willie, they probably haven't heard that before. And so they're reading it for the first time in your book. How, how so I'm sorry, in the interruption of that, Antoine, you were finished. Well, yeah, well, I want to, I want to give you a chance to, to flesh that out for, for our listeners, at least who have, who may end up seeing that quote in the next four or five months standalone. And for you to maybe, maybe really put some context around it so that, People know what you are saying and what you are not saying uh, with that statement or by agreeing to that statement or bringing that statement to the fore. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so as Marcus mentioned, that comes from um, Dr. Willie Jennings, who many would say is one of the most foremost public theologians on race and Christianity. And uh, yeah, when describing white supremacy, he calls it a parasite, which most people have a sense of parasites, a nasty little organism that can't survive on its own, right? It has to attach itself to another larger host in order to survive. So he claims that the host of white supremacy attached itself into the Western world was the church, was Christianity, yeah. that it couldn't have survived without attaching itself to um, Christianity as a host. And uh, the minute I heard that, it explained, you know, so I'm a pastor, like that's my day job. I'm not, I'm not you know, doing this kind of stuff. It's just on the side. In the pastoral sense, it just immediately explained two of the, like we live in such a polarized, divided world, right? And that metaphor helps me understand where a lot of the polarization comes from, because I've walked with so many folks who they see the presence of white supremacy in the church. They see that even if the pastors and Christians aren't overtly subscribing to this, they create safe havens for it, right? And we just talked about this, right? The fact that you can't talk openly about it means that churches are safe havens for white Mm -hmm. supremacy. Um, So people see that and they say, I want nothing to do with that. If that's what Christianity is, I want nothing to do. So that's one extreme that forms is people walking away from the church because they see this parasitic relationship. And then it helps me explain the world I come from. I'm I'm the son of a pastor. I've been in evangelicalism all my life. Um, 
and most of my circles still will not talk about the parasitic relationship between white supremacy and Christianity. And so ironically, what ends up happening is that while defending Christ in an evangelistic way, which is what their intention is, they're simultaneously defending white supremacy because they refuse to knowledge, right? That's not Christianity. That doesn't actually say anything about Christianity, that white supremacy has attached itself to it. It says everything right. about the parasite, not the host. But right. when you won't call it that, they look the same then, right? So to evangelize for Jesus without critiquing and naming the sin of white supremacy sounds like you're defending white supremacy. And hmm. so they're two different extremes, but they're actually very similar to each other in that it's a refusal or an unwillingness to decouple the one from the other, the, an unwillingness to kind of objectively look at the fact of, did white supremacy attach itself to Christianity? If so, how? And how do we detach it then? How do you pull a parasite out once it got in? And so that's what I say to lost folks who have walked away. I'm like, look, I see what you see, but I still see the beautiful Jesus under that too, right? So that's right. actually intellectually irresponsible to make a judgment about Jesus just because something attached itself to him. But then what I say to white Christians is like, you're breaking my heart because I love the same Jesus you do. But when you won't talk about the white supremacy that's attached itself to him and that many of those who claim the name of Jesus help perpetuate, you, you're not actually giving people a chance at Jesus, right? Like you're, you're, you're kind of passing on this blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus that we can't separate out from the true Jesus of Nazareth. And, and you're actually becoming a very ineffective evangelist, even though that's your intention is to point people. So it's like two different extremes, but I think it comes from the same failure of being willing, unwilling to decouple white supremacy from, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. It, it produces this contaminated version right. of Jesus, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and what we see in scripture is that God is very particular about his name, you know, about, oh, about it right. in the old, and, and, and many times he's like, Hey, judgment, even even the adultery right. of Israel is about, is a reflection of himself. And he's saying, the fact that you're behaving in such a way that you depend on something other than me defames me. You know, it does not apply right. the proper representation of who I am. And God responds judgmentally, not just right. for the sin, but for the way it reflects on him. Right. And um, and this is one of those places where... where um, where if we're right about this, then white supremacy in this parasitic relationship casts a shadow a on who, Jesus. Yeah. I was with a group of pastors recently, and one of them said that, you know, you hear this all the time. They said, it seems important that you're doing this work around white supremacy. We value it, but we're just trying to preach the gospel. Like, that's not our work to talk about white supremacy. I'm like, I, there's a very thing I said. I said, all right, let's go to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, that's one of my favorite passages about Jesus, right? It says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? Been reconciling all things to himself on heaven and on earth, seen and unseen, right? In verse 15, I think it says, so that he can be supreme over all things, mm. right? So he can be Lord over all things. I said, we both agree with that, right? That's who Jesus is, the image of the invisible God that's meant to be supreme over all things, right? Yeah, yeah. White supremacy has in its very name yeah. the fact that it's challenging the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It literally names its intentions by its very title that it is trying to claim supremacy over all things. How can you say this is disassociated from the evangelism you're trying to do, the preaching of the gospel, right? Like this thing's all around us openly challenging the Lordship yeah. of Jesus Christ. So it's just, the, we've been hoodwinked to have kind of treat this as some political, social, social kind of reality that's indifferent to the gospel. It's like, just like you said, it's like, man, I think God would say, how dare you all, this thing mocked me and you all just kind of went back to your life as normal as if it wasn't here. I just, I just don't know how we do it. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. And I know, I know, I'm sure people who are listening are probably curious, obviously, obviously, because race is a fairly recent type of 
you know, categorization of people, right? Um, the Bible doesn't necessarily speak directly like, hey, here's how you deal with white supremacy uh, as far as, you know, going forward. But the, the concept, the idea, the uh, thing that drives white supremacy, sort of this, this hierarchical, uh, this, this right. stratification of, of human beings um, and, and how we and how we respond uh, if we're if if we are in the situation of, of wanting to uh, be supreme, uh, those who are trying, you know, those who are categorizing people as inferior and inflicting damage upon them, is is there some place in scripture that that we can point the listeners to that'll help kind of unpack that a little bit so that that they can they can come to it and, and see it. Yeah, this this is where it's maddening to me, the inconsistency within within evangelical settings. I was with a pastor who was moving towards wanting to confront white supremacy, but he just said this very same thing. I just don't know how I could do it biblically. You know, it's my, mm. my, my congregation always thinks of it as a political, social thing. Yeah. And I said, I know this pastor. I said, didn't just last month you do a Sanctity of Life Sunday? Yeah. He said, yeah. I said, how'd your church respond to that? He said, oh, great. I mean, they know, like, that's always part of our DNA is to fight for that for the unborn. I said, tell me your biblical justification for safety of life Sunday. And he said, I believe that the moment that a baby is inside of its mother's womb, it's an image bearer of God. And any system that is putting that image bearer of God, their life at risk yep. as Christians, we must stand up. I'm like, oh, huh. So then tell me again, like where the disconnect is for, because that is literally the exact same biblical thought, right? It is an assault on image bearers. Yeah. Based on lies at the principality level that are literally putting people in basket in, in, in death baskets, not to mention just the ongoing assault on their personhood. But like I was like, so I was like, can you just be more honest? It's not that it's not biblical, it's that there's this psychic break that's happened in religious conservative circles where we can like with ease say, let's have a sanctity of life Sunday and talk about the threat level of the Imago Day within yeah. babies. But if we start talking about the Imago Day, in people of color and the way white supremacy attacks that, oh, no, 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 now it's a social political issue. We have all the resources we need. Like it doesn't sound any different than what every one of these churches would say that already does on Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, We just, the more honest truth we have to say is that we've been conditioned to think of white supremacy as different than that. And we've learned how to categorize it as something different and then kind of play theologically dumb. Like we don't know how to interact with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's a cost associated, you know, there's, and yeah, I said this, to, I said, right. yeah, I said this to one, one of my friends, you were talking about the but abortion conversation and the difference. And I'm like, well, you know, it's a moral high ground. You have a lot to gain in that conversation. You're not the one aborting or not right. aborting. So, so right. from your switch, from your point of view, you, 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 you gain the high ground and the, and the, right. high, and the euphoric feeling of being the good and the right person, which is not, not altogether, a, a problem, but it is right. a thing. Uh, and then you have very little to lose in this conversation right. as well. You know, you can make that stand mm-hmm. and, and who, what, even if you do get people who disagree with you, what, what is the real consequence of making that choice? Not very mm-hmm. much, you know, Hey, I'm pro-life. Okay. I'm not. Yeah. If someone yeah. else says they're not, okay. That, that changes your life yeah. in zero ways. But but right. but this social political or rather this racial conversation that is being dubbed as social political really means this affects all of us, and this conversation right. now affects all of us. And I don't and I don't like the way it's going to affect me, whether yeah. it's psychologically, whether it's my reputation, right. whether it's my status, right. whether it's my moral my moral position in the in the in the in the society. And because that I stand to lose in this conversation, I no longer want to have it. 
And uh, yeah. I don't even want to entertain the possibility of it, you know, and, and that is certainly an American condition of comp- competition and our addiction to winning instead of uh, sacrifice. Yeah, and look, and our, our desire to not want to lose, um, not only sort of right now, but lose uh, sort of the historic, this <laughs> hysterical, historical narrative that we've been keeping about the origins of our country. Right. Right. And I think that's one of the things that you you do in your book well, too, is to think through, you know, if there's people who are going, you you know, you mentioned, you know, in some ways, the the people who started this country were it was they were Christians. Right. Christian ideals. Um, What are some what are some versions of white supremacy? So what is like what is what does white supremacy look like historically, maybe utilizing some of the situations that we see white supremacy work out, but then also in some of the narrative uh, or or quotes, if you will, of some of the uh, the uh, forefathers, if you will, or some people who come before us. Help us help our audience see that it's where it exists historically. You know, I I think. So the Bible is just so clear that truth is all what we need to always be after, right? Jesus is truth. He calls it to truth. And so anytime we're not telling the full truth, we're at risk spiritually, right? So it's not telling the whole truth when you leave out something, which is problematic enough. It's it's even more of a risk when you kind of retell the story a little bit, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think of just so much of our historical upbringing, like when I try to understand colonization, though I didn't have the word for that, you know, I didn't understand. But when I try to understand what it meant for European people to come here and displace native people, like the stories I heard were of these like happy picnics on Thanksgiving in between, you know, the Indian folks and the white folks, you know, who are enjoying it instead of like the much more honest thing of like war and bloodshed and the narratives required to that, right? Where the native people were collapsed into one group, even though there were hundreds of tribes collapsed into one group called savages. It's really the first time that word was ever used for human beings on a large level, which never used that for a human, used that for an animal that's going to kill you, right? So it's like this narrative of depicting an entire group of people who lived here as savages and then, you know, um, methodically removing and even killing them, right? I mean, I hate talking about that, but to the 11 million plus African folks who were brought over here, right, during transatlantic slavery and the brutal conditions that those were under, right? Uh, I Man, I never heard honest retellings. And when we did talk about it, it was it was still told in a triumphalistic way of like yes yeah. there's there's this bad chapter but thank God for white Christians we we're the ones who turned it over you know as if we weren't the ones who started in the first place and and then it was always categorized as and it was bad but like this is where evan- like this is where evangelism in, in Africa's happened you know is through the introduction of Christianity through slavery so yeah there's some bad there's a lot of good because people became Christian like that was the way I heard the story over and over like in churches and schools everywhere so like, to me that would be examples of where. Um, we have told the truth in a way that's not truthful, that really is more befitting kind of the way we want to remember it rather than the way it really actually did happen. And where it sets us up for failure then, when that's when that's the kind of historical frame we've been introduced to our past through, right? We're just not on level ground, level truth ground anymore. Yeah, and look, and that's, that's, that's the place where you take me. Go ahead. I oh, was sorry, I was just saying it's it's the place that is so difficult. Uh, we, we've had a guest uh, on here recently, uh, not, I guess several episodes ago, um, uh, who was kind of a Native American who was kind of telling, uh, Mark Charles was telling the, the understanding of the doctrine of discovery, manifest destiny. I know you mentioned that a little bit in your book as well. Uh, and the this word triumphalism, I feel, is becoming one of those like really popular words that people are talking about. And, and you see it, I think, even over and over again, as you have conversations with people who are well-intentioned and say, I want to get into this conversation with you, but it's almost like they need you to give them, they need you to give them a bone, right? It's the bone of Mm -hmm. we've progressed, but we've progressed 
like we've progressed, right? Like this is okay. Um, but, but they, 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 <laughs> in essence, why aren't you celebrating? <laughs> right. Right. Like again, because I think yeah. the church is, is celebrating has not been a problem for the church. Right. Like we've always been really good at, at triumphalism. Right. Uh, celebration. It's the lament. It's the it's the uh, confession. It's the thinking back to maybe the place that we've done wrong that we've really struggled with. Right. Uh, and in many ways, we're talking about this in the, the context of here's some of the historical ways in which white supremacy has been a parasite that attached itself to you know Christianity and whatnot. But again, I think many people are going, OK, I can see some of that stuff. But but again, we've we've gotten better. We've progressed. White supremacy is not something we need to talk about because it doesn't really exist except in those fringe places. What are some current expressions of white supremacy that you maybe are seeing right now that we need to just be aware of both in the world and in the church? Well, yeah, I think it's it's important to like redefine it, right? Because for as long as it's defined by extreme forms, and we are going to be able to tell a triumphalistic story, right? So as long as there's the occasional outbreak of the Dylan Roof or you know, the extreme officer or something that, that does something obscene. But other than that, that's the only times that, that probably is going to sound triumphalistic, right? But if we define it instead as just this simple lie, this lie that says whiteness is superior and blackness is inferior and everybody else is measured based on proximity to those two poles, that just totally changes the way you look for it, right? So you say, well, where is that lie still <laughs> present? Where is that lie still operative? And that's when it starts to become terrifying because like, obviously I'm not telling you guys, you don't know, you know this already, but like for the audience, just to be clear of like every human, every quality of life indicator we have, right? In terms of health disparities, um, in terms of um, access to good education, you know, um, in terms of how the judicial system treats people, like it always falls along the same distribution line that the nervous hierarchy does, right? It's like white people are the ones who enjoy it at the highest level. Black people are the ones who enjoy it, like are suffering the most. And you have to kind of ask, how is it that education continues to be so unequal? How is it that the judicial system is quadruple, you know, imprisons quadruple the amount of black folks that it does proportionally to white folks? Right? I mean, you just go system by system through that and you just see like oh shoot this thing is operative everywhere still <laughs> you take a city i don't know i don't know if dallas has the same kind of kind of uh the, the way neighborhoods developed like for in chicago for instance i mean you have to be willful still to ignore mm -hmm. it here because um you're right it was an all when i studied the history of chicago one of the historians yeah. said the, the infighting between the European different ethnic groups was brutal in Chicago. The, the European ethnic groups all hated each other. They fought nonstop in Chicago. The only thing that ever, the only thing that ever united all these different European ethnic groups yeah. was when black folks started showing up. Yeah. That was the first thing they were ever able to unify against was their hatred of black folks, right? And so the South side of Chicago and the West side of Chicago was all black, not on accidents because when the migration happened, when black folks were literally fleeing for their lives from lynching in the South, they came here, all these European ethnic groups finally agreed on something and pushed them outside of the city, right? And our city still suffers from the wealth concentrated all in the white areas and the like despair that's in so many of the African-American communities that are here, right? I mean, it's just, you can like pick any index and see the manifestation of white supremacy. And so I don't think somebody's being willful when they do this, but when they try to diminish the impact of white supremacy, they are choosing to kind of put their head in the sand and ignore the real world that we live in, which is clearly still feeling the ongoing after effects and current effects of the legacy of white supremacy. Hmm. Are you seeing, uh, it, it, you talked about it definitely, and you know, I, I love reading about the history of, of all this and examining that even more so. Um, in the church, 
what are some of the ways in which, again, as you talk to pastors and whatnot, are you hearing like terminology? Are you hearing uh, phrases that kind of go, man, this is continually being repeated in the church about whites in a way that, that models are, gives an example that white supremacy still exists even amongst the church. Have you seen any of that? That's, I, I think, that, you know, I'm sure you guys have the same approach. I would guess there's nothing about how we should approach this conversation. that's any different than that. We should approach the conversation of following Jesus in general. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, you know, it's, if we knew of a non-believer who was kind of dabbling around faith and started saying, let me, let me, you know, alter this behavior a little bit here. Let me alter this behavior a little bit. How about now? Am I close to being a Christian? How am I being a Christian? We'd be like, no, that's not the heart. Like the heartbeat of Christianity starts with a revelation that Jesus Christ is Lord over all, that you are a sinner who's got no hope outside of the grace of God. Right. And through repentance, confession, you enter into the presence and the grace of God. Like that, nothing starts moving, right? That there's, there's no, there's no nothing until we come as repentant sinners into the presence of God and then fully surrender and submit ourselves to him. And then who knows where it's going to go from there, right? Then is that the spirits leading after that? I kind of feel like that's where the white church is at in America, where, where some parts are starting to dab a little bit, talk a little bit more, a little more open to it, try to be a little bit more diverse. Like, no, 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 no. Like we have to have a reckoning first, right? We, we have got to say this thing exists because of us. We have created safe haven for this. We've created theology that allowed for it to persist in our nation. Um, this isn't about figuring out who's woke and who's not woke, how racist is one church or other. No, this is about saying we need a collective revival, the same thing I grew up with, right? When when we would pray for revival, it was this prayer that there'd be broad sweeping confession mm-hmm. of sin, surrender to Jesus Christ, handing our lives over to him. Like th- th- this thing, I mean, I- I'm up for conversation about what do we do, but until there has been this sense of, White supremacy is built on a lie. It lies about God. It lies about people. It lies about where human values comes from. We are people of the truth. We cannot stand by when there's a lie. So starting now, we say no longer can we stand by idly while this lie is being told, nor can we ignore the fact that we've created safe haven for this lie for two plus centuries. So we are going to have a sackcloth and ashes moment and say, we, the people of God, have stood by complicitly while this lie has ravaged our nation. And if we would have a movement like that, white churches, like this thing would start moving fast, right? Because I actually yeah. don't know, like that still wouldn't change the fact that we're up against a monster here. <laughs> it's like, right. it's not like that's the end of it, but um, we would be united in the sense that we're no longer going to tolerate being in the presence of lies. And we're no longer going to pretend like this thing isn't real and that we're not up against this principality of darkness, you know, as the Apostle Paul would call it in Ephesians 6. So that that's where, you know, I see a handful of churches kind of having those kind of conversations, but I think it's just like, I mean, again, I grew up in fire and brimstone churches. They were always praying for revival. I'm like, I'm praying for revival more than I've ever prayed. Right. But there mm. will not be revival in this country until white churches acknowledge their complicity with creating safe Harbor for this lie. And I don't know what the percentage is, 20%, 30%, 40%. I don't know when a critical mass happens, but if a critical mass of white Christians and white churches would repent, I really think we would see like fast movement in terms of confronting the ideology of white supremacy. Absolutely. I, I, I love the marriage. What you just articulated is the marriage of just preach the gospel and, and the idea of defending the values of the gospel uh, in, in, re, in the reality of life. You, you say a revival is 
in many cases, for many, a revival means you're, is, re, is, is a kind of reminder sometimes. I mean, it is a revelation from God that comes and says, hey, this is what you need to see that you haven't been seeing or you've chosen to ignore. It's a special moment. But oftentimes revival is this reminder that says, oh, that's right. I did say I was a Christian, right? And and then to remember mm-hmm. that my life choices now need to really be affected by, by this Holy Spirit that's living inside of me and this submission that I've made to Christ. If we must preach the gospel to those who have already heard it, you know, which, you know, uh, which in many cases, the way we've articulated, it's like we were going to preach the gospel to people who, if the solution is preach the gospel, how do we preach the gospel to people who already have the gospel? It was the Christians who had the gospel that set this thing up. So how do we preach the gospel to them? Well, that means that we got to revive them. That means we got to bring them back to who God, uh, remind them of who God and what God said he is and what it is that we have put in his place. Um, and why it is that we're protecting that thing. And um, and that's where preaching the gospel leads to action. One of the analogies I think I've used in the past is, it's like trying to fix a marriage by saying, hey, go get married again. Go go have another wedding. You know, hey, would you, right. you would, the, the solution to your marital issues is to go have a wedding. You're like, well, I've, I've already, already had the wedding. Like, uh, no, if you would just go have the wedding and make the vows again, then everything would be everything would be fine. And that's what it sounds like in my head. There's the yeah. wedding and there's the marriage and there's the gospel, which brings us into this wonderful connectivity with Christ. And then there's the sanctifying, sanctifying life, the marriage of living with God and, and allowing God to affect the way we live. And when we sometimes when we say just preach the gospel, it it sounds like just go have a wedding to people who have already been for the analogy, been married. And it's good to revisit the vows though. Let's go look at your vows and remember what you said. And remember that these are the things that you said, the ways you said you would live because of the love you have for your for your spouse and similar with God. And so I, I love the idea of revival and where the gospel can take us back so that we can do this. It's so interesting that we're trying to pit something, the engine against the car when it's the engine that drives the car, you know, mm-hmm. that is the gospel, you know? Anyway, well, I'm mixing all the metaphors. You got all the metaphors. <laughs> that's all right. We just anybody's gonna pick up one of them and like, okay, I can do the math. Yeah, they're gonna get, they're gonna get <laughs> something. Yeah. We got it. We're trying to hit all the the, the demographics on this thing. You know, I, I keep I, the, the term revival is something that I, I get kind of stressed out almost by that, right? Because I feel like we've we've done multiple revivals in this country. It goes back to what we were just talking about. We've done multiple revivals in this country. We did revivals while we were doing. Uh, horrible things to people, why we were lynching people and doing slavery and all these kinds of different things. So uh, it goes to, you know, I think something that you said in your book that I think is, is, is so important is uh, again, this, this, the, the, the hype word is diversity. People like to talk about, let's get more diverse, more diversity, that kind of thing, which again, I like it. I think it's good. Um, But I think part of what is important and particularly when we're talking about revival is you can't have revival led by the same thought process and people who led the revivals before, right? Like to your point, Daniel, you got to get rid of this white uh, supremacy out of it. But if you haven't even, if you haven't wrestled with that, then you could throw a revival, but you're just going to, you're just going to be back in the same place that you were before. So to change that, you, part did of you I, make, what, did you make that? America great again? <laughs> but that's a, that's, that's, but that's a, that's a, that's too far. So let's, let's come back from that. Go ahead. <laughs> but it's part of the, that's but, part but what of is it. great, you know, uh, but that's part of it. It's this, a I, I want to say, this is what's great. Then wait a minute. We, we were just trying to say that wasn't great. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that it is that piece of hearkening back to something historically. We're like, I just want to get back to this place again when it was great. Let's revival and go back to this place. But we keep not recognizing that there was there were some things going on in that particular time where that revival was happening that a lot of other people, particularly people of color, were not were not enjoying that time. Right. So this idea of diversity, I think people get at it. And you said, you know, sometimes they go after diversity as if it's an end. Uh, like if I can just get to diversity, my problems are solved. And then we get it and we're all set and we're ready to go. I can feel good. I can take my pictures. I can put my stuff up on the marketing. Look at us. We're, we're, we're diverse. Let's have a revival. We're ready to go. But the, the, the piece that you talk about in your book is diversity is not an end, but it's a means to an end, right? And so even in talking about revival, like if, if we were to work towards getting diversity so that we can actually see God and understand God differently so that we can see each other and see ourselves differently so that we can understand the world differently, uh, and so that we can create a picture that is more uh, that is is closer to the image of God for the world to see, so that they will be drawn to it. Uh, if we get into that space where we're doing all of that together, then I'm up for revival because now what that means is as the revival is being sort of sort of planned, if you will, and being moved forward. As far as uh, it, I think the leaders are going to be more uh, are going to bring more uh, perspective and more lenses to the space so that we can see God as a bigger thing. And we can, to the point again, present God to the world in a way that is much closer to his image, which will draw people to him. And so that's where I think the church is missing right now is, is we, we, we want all this revival, but we don't want to do the hard work of breaking down all the, the, uh, the things that have, have minimized the opportunity for revival in this country in the first place, which I think is a lot of our mindset around, around whiteness and white supremacy. And we, we don't talk about it. We, and it's, it's frustrating, for sure. Absolutely. Um, how then, if, if there's a, if there's a, a person in, in a church right now who's, who's listening, and how, would, how, how, does, how does one detect, how does one detect white supremacy in their church? Uh, and, then, and then how do they confront it, if you will? If, I don't even know if that's the right language to, to talk about it. Well, hate to be a downer, but if you're in a majority white church, white supremacy is there. So you don't have to work real hard <laughs> to detect it. Yeah, that's, that's part of the question. I, I mean, I just, it's really, yeah. And, and I mean, I think even for us, though, that you're right, this is one of the problems of like, there's white folks who aren't interacting with that, this, and then that's one challenge. But then there's one white folks who did care about this. And then we just assume we're instantly free of it just because we care about it now. And it's like, when we do trainings both in our church and outside with white folks, white Christians, especially the, the question is not does white supremacy exist in me? It's like, where does white supremacy exist in me? Where are the lies still have safe Harbor within me? And how do I, it's one of the reasons I like the parasite image because uh, I mean, it's not like it, but it helps me. It gives me a very concrete image of being a pastor. Um, uh, we, we did, we did, we went through white lies, the book um, with our white community, at our church this summer. And we started with that image that's in the opening chapter the parasite of white supremacy. And uh, one of the guys, an elder, a 70 year old guy in our church, seven year old white guy, you know, so this is not stuff he had thought about growing up. And it's really great that he's not wrestling with this. He said, at first, I disliked that because I actually have a parasite inside of me that medic, med, medical doctors and everybody will get rid of. So it didn't quite work. He said, but then I started thinking on more and I researched it. And he's like, and more and more, it made sense. And he said, then I came, he found, he discovered there's a certain kind of parasite in India that's very common there, that when the parasite gets into somebody, um, the doctor can't pull it all out at once because it'll do too much damage. Mm. So it takes about a week to get the parasite out. You have to pull it one seventh of the way and then stop and let wow. your body, 
cover then pull it one more seventh of the way and you do it over the course of a week and you can finally get it out wow i was like man that that is pastoral work right there for yeah. me right because this is not about a box you check right it's like okay i get it now racism bad let's move on it's about saying no like lies are scary like yeah. lie, like a little lie took down the whole garden of eden right like lies yeah. are scary when when they're left unattended and when they get deep inside it actually it's very spirit-led pastoral work to kind of wrench it out and to wrench it out in a way where it doesn't kill you while doing it. You know, I remember one, a Bible study not too long ago, where we were talking about this again, this parasitic relationship. There was a white woman who had just moved here from Atlanta, um, grew up, you know, in the South and had never really thought about race. And she said, I'm terrified if it's true that white supremacy is in me and in my faith, I'm scared there'll be no Jesus left by the time I get this mm. parasite out. Mm. And I thought, you know, I hear that. I really do. That is, you start to wonder, like, if it attached itself to our understanding of Jesus, what's left after you wrench the parasite out, right? But, of course, after 20 years of this, I'm more convinced, like, no, that's not the true fear. The true fear is that we never knew Jesus fully in the first place because it's mm -hmm. compromised by this parasite that's in there. Mm -hmm. So I hear that. So I hear that. But if Jesus is real, and I believe he is, if he's the source of all truth, which I believe he is, yanking these lies out ain't going to do nothing to harm your relationship with Jesus. It's going to make it better, mm -hmm. right? But it, that's part of the lie is that you need to leave it untouched because the risk level is too high. I'm like, no, the risk level of not confronting it is too high. That's the thing that can mess up a relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess, th those are some of my first past thoughts. Like, I, I think... Well, a lot of us who are white, we think this conversation is about what we're supposed to do for you guys, right? Like, what are we supposed to do for black folks or Latin, Latino folks, something like that? I'm like, probably the most pressing thing is to say, how do I get free, right? Like, how do, how do I get liberated from these lies that have found safe harbor inside of me? Because I'm just not really fully good to anybody if there's lies that are inside of me. This isn't about consciously being mean to people of color or something like that. It's about saying the lies that sustain this system are inside all of us, right? But you all have had to figure out how to wrench those lies out for a long time it's, it's it's white folks who are trying to figure out like how do we wrench it out now right i mean that's probably the most pressing work for white christians is starting to reckon with that idea of how do i wrench this parasite out of me how do i wrench some of these lies out, out outside outside of my heart and mind and soul yeah it's also it's also primarily a, a question of how do we love god well you know like you, you, if the commandment is to love god well and then love others then we don't want to hurt god either right and and so right. if, if we're saying there's something in me that that as a representation or right. as an icon of, of, of God, of the kingdom that, that hurts him, you know, in a sense, totally. you know, that damages him. My love for him will require, it seems, that I would want that I think thing that out. Be, I think that should be stressed. To be inactive or indifferent about white supremacy is just to give in to the fact that you're not going to see God as clearly as you should. You're not going to see yourself as clearly as you should. And you can't love your neighbor as clearly as you should. Like, that's just literally what you're giving into yeah. when you remain inactive and indifferent about this. It's very yeah. serious, the consequences of being indifferent. Mm, wow. Well, look, the book is White Lies. <laughs> the, the author and our guest right here is Daniel Hill. And uh, man, good, good, definitely a good convo. One, one of the things I want to do and that we do, uh, Daniel, for our insiders is we, we get you by yourself for a little bit uh, and just talk a little bit more frankly about some of the things that our insiders get, uh, get connected to. So, uh, man, if you uh, have not uh, signed up to be uh, an insider, man, go to uh, wearethreaded.org uh, and sign up for the newsletter. And, uh, and that'll get you uh, dropped into the space where you'll get uh, extra content, you'll get extra um, not only content from the show, but even extra content that we do as threaded. Uh, and so, uh, and, and you'll get this extra content because here's, here's some of the stuff I want to talk to you about, Daniel. Um, 
One is you you had a you had a great understanding of of Cain and Abel from your book that I think is is fascinating mm-hmm. for people. Uh, I also want to know we we just had we had a presidential debate not too long ago where the concept of white white supremacy was brought up, uh, and I'd love to get your your thoughts on that. Uh, and so, uh, if you want to hear any more from Daniel Hill, make sure you jump in and become an insider. Uh, Antoine, any other things to ask Mr. Hill before we uh, or Dr. Hill before we we finish up here? In this oh, man. Enjoy, enjoy the conversation. I enjoyed reading the book. Uh, I enjoyed the book and it was, it was challenging and riveting and hopefully for, for our audience as they pick it up as well, every person will pick it up and yes. be challenged by it by, as well. Thank you for your, I want to say thank you for your courage, but it's really, it, it is courageous, but you know, just, just your commitment to, to, to God in this, it, you know, again, it's, it's almost less, I think the less we think on some level, we need to think about our neighbors, but we need to think about God, you know? And so the, your love for God drives this, and then that spills onto the neighbor. And so I, I love that you're driven by your love for God and that you didn't say no to his call in your life in this area. So thank you. And I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So here we go. We've got, uh, again, the, the author and our guest is Daniel Hill. The books that you want to check out are White Awake. Again, I, I, I recommend that if you're thinking, should I read White Fragility or whatever? I say read White Awake first, and then maybe you can go into White Fragility. And uh, uh, the other book that we've been talking about mostly is White Lies. Go pick that up. You can grab that on Amazon, whatever. Go go to uh, uh, check that out. We want to make sure that we are supporting these uh, amazing authors and these leaders in this conversation. So this is Color Commentary, and we're so glad that you're here. You know how it is. We are colorful people, uh, and there are colorful people out there. And this is a colorful world with lots of different colorful lenses that we get the opportunity to look through. So as you go through life, make sure you stay colored. You have been listening to Colored Commentary, powered by Threaded, a biblical reconciliation ministry. To find out more about Threaded and Colored Commentary, go to wearethreaded.org forward slash podcast. And to continue today's conversation, follow us on Twitter at Colored Comments.